0: Welcome to the Kenmore Church Podcast. We are all about filling hearts and fueling mission. We hope this content builds your heart and mind and equips you to reveal Jesus in this season of your life. We've been talking into the last few weeks and in the preceding time before that, this whole journey of going from the time of waiting into the and suddenly moment, the, the doors that God opens for us, that the moments in God life where it just takes your breath away. And we've been looking at several facets to that. And one of the main ones is to know that when we walk through one of these doors that God open, opens up to something brand new for us, it will often require us to be prepared to let go of one thing, to be able to pick up something else. And so for Peter, for example, we've used him as an example constantly in there. For him to take up the call of Jesus that day when he said, come with me, I'll make you a fisher of men. To pick that calling up, he had to let go of his fishing business. So on the way to following Jesus, he may have looked back and seen those boats Uh, get smaller in the distance. Uh, For Zacchaeus, for him to take up the offer of salvation, it just overflowed to him having room in his heart then to give away rather than uh, extort money from people. For the Apostle Paul, before he was Paul, he was Saul. For him to pick up this whole idea of relationship with God, he had to be prepared to lose the concept of religion as he knew it. And so open doors They're they're not all fun. They're not all bells and whistles. They they seem it when we're longing for one. But the experience itself is a little bit breathtaking. It's it's exhilarating and just that little bit scary. And that's never been more true than of a day that we would celebrate today, the day of Pentecost. Pentecost was a day where the church itself was born. And it's one of the most, I find, under-celebrated moments in the church calendar. uh, There's a 40-day gap between Jesus' uh, ascension, uh, resurrection and his ascension. Then there's another gap of 10 days from the, his ascension to this day of Pentecost. And it was a day where they celebrated in the Jewish calendar, the giving of the law. And on this day, now it was to become a celebration for us of the giving of the spirit. The law required the spirit enables. And so it's a huge turnaround, a massive shift in the, in the religious eyes of a whole nation who were defined fundamentally by their law. To have it confronted so much and have such a big, sudden open door come before them, it challenged them to their very core. And so, unsurprisingly, I guess, not everyone was prepared to walk through that door. Because to accept this new idea, not only did it come in a very challenging format, which we'll see in a moment, but would require them to set aside that which they were raised from their earliest days to believe, to buy into, and to contribute to. For example, the temple system, which was a fundamental part of the DNA of their culture. The finance relied on it. Religion relied on it. Now, Pentecost presented them with the concept that the temple was now them. That the the dwelling place of God, it had been the temple. Jesus came and said, I am now the dwelling place of God among you. And now he's saying, now the spirit's within you. Now the temple resides in, in a person, in multiple people. The concept was just so radical, so hard for them to get their head around. Their existing law system like uh, circumcision and and other regulations of of ceremonial cleansing and all this sort of thing that that they had to do if they were to be uh, seen as righteous before God. Now Jesus has come and he's died and now he is their righteousness. This is a huge step for them to take. And so safe religious practices were overturned. All sorts of things had to be grappled with. If Pentecost, this open door into something incredible, was to be applied. And what we need to understand, and let me give you a principle here about open doors that I've just learned through many years and observed through Scripture, is that open doors, unlike laws, so if you can separate the two, doors and laws, open doors are an offer, whereas laws are an order. And these offers that God has, He opens a door and says, I'm not going to push you through that door. I present you this door as an offer. The great thing about the door is that the door normally remains open. If we decide at one some point for whatever reason, that door is not for me right now, and we may be wrong in doing that, God's gracious enough to leave that door open. You can keep coming back and he'll present it to us again and again. You see that in the lives of those walking on the journey into salvation. They may have a moment where they say, I'm not prepared for that door. Jesus doesn't then shut the door in them forever. He'll present that door again and again. And so this is a wonderful grace of working with God, where he converts from orders to offers. You see, law is simple. Law just says, this is what's required. This is what I have to do. And it produces in us a mindset, whereas I only do what I have to do. But if I don't do it, there's a punitive penalty for that. If I do do it, I'm okay before God. And it develops a mindset in us that really appeals to more the darker side of shame and fear and guilt and all those sorts of things. Whereas doors appeal to our better angels. They they give us... um, the presence of choice. And so we can choose to go God's way in the in the presence of a choice not to. This is the same concept of the tree of knowledge of good and evil in the Garden of Eden and the tree of life. It was there. They, they could choose uh, to not go there or they could choose to go there. The choice remained theirs. And this is really life with God. He doesn't want to be an obligation for us. It's a choice. Jesus came and said, I, I come to give you life. Do you want it? Is this you want to take this choice up? I open this door before you, but is it something that you want? That's the upside. The downside is that open doors come with a degree of uncertainty. We don't always look at those doors and go, "Absolutely, I'm going through those," because not everything is explained in the doors. The door is there, but sometimes there's a lack of clarity there. Not all the things that I fear, for example, will necessarily be explained. Jesus didn't go to great depths to often explain himself, he left it confusing, he left it mysterious because he wanted people to engage, to desire, to take a leap of faith. And so the doors will always require a leap of faith. And we don't know completely what's on the other side. We only know the one who calls us. All we know is that God is with us. God's opened this door. I can't be certain of where this is going to go completely, but I can be certain of him. And so this presence of choice really begins to reveal to us What is it in life that I rely on? What do I rely on here? Do I rely on God or do I rely on something else? And this will be shown up in spades at the open door. See, if I rely on comfort, for example, then uh, I'll ask questions like, uh, I need to know what's going to be beyond this door. Is this going to be trouble-free for me? Is there going to be things go wrong? Because I don't want to go through this door, God, unless you guarantee it's all going to go well for me. And so these are the unspoken, often things that go through our mind that stop us going through these doors. Perhaps we rely on a lack of change. Will I need to change my beliefs? Will I need to change my lifestyle? What's what's on the other side of this door? Is it so radical that I'm not going to be who I am or live like I am anymore? Perhaps we need clarity. Um, We want to know exactly how this is all going to work. We need to know how God works and and what he has for us and how it's going to work out. We need the detail before we go through the door. And sometimes we just rely on uh, an absence of fear. Instead of walking through the door through courage, we hesitate because of fear. We want to know, God, are you going to provide for me? Is, is What happens if my strength fails here? Are, are you going to be enough? And so we make our decisions based on uh, uncertainty of whether God can provide. There's all these reasons why we'll hesitate at the beginning of that door. And so the presence of this choice seems to rustle up These things. Let's see how this works out on the day of Pentecost itself, and we'll look at the scriptures directly about that. It's in Acts chapter 2, 1 to 5. Let's read it together. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly, a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now, they were staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. We look at 2,000 years of history, and we've probably heard this story so many times that we can almost treat it as blasé. But this new day, this new door, this was a cataclysmic, uh, world-changing event for religion, for the Jews, and particularly, obviously, for the Christians. It was the offer of spirit-empowered life for the common man. It used to be an incredible exception for the Spirit of God to be upon someone and driving their life. And now we're seeing the offer there is for a normative experience where the Holy Spirit falls upon us and empowers us to live. But for the people in the area, this was a real surprise. Obviously, they were there that day at Passover for something completely different. They were there to be enamoured by the law. And now they're confronted with this pretty chaotic situation of flames on heads and sounds of wind and, and people speaking in other languages. And you've got to ask, I guess, why they are the languages. Where's where's that before this in Scripture? Well, nowhere really. Uh, But what we find the Spirit does is enables humanity to provide what humanity needs. It's, It's God's grace comes upon to meet the need that's there. And there were people there, as the Scripture says, from many nations, tribes and tongues. So how do they get the message of the goodness and glory of God out? Well, they're obviously going to have to speak in their language. And so God gives that gift at that time. And that gift is still obviously around, but we can look at this and get very prescriptive and say, well, when the Spirit comes, then everyone must be obviously speak in other languages. But God was meeting the need of that moment in the way that needed to be done. And He still does that today. We need to understand that about life in the Spirit. He meets the needs of humanity today through His grace, and that's how He works. But after a couple of decades now of working with people and leading through Uh, renewal experiences in the lives of normal people uh, like most of us. You begin to see patterns here. It's particularly when you read a passage like that, which has been interpreted so many different ways and overemphasized, underemphasized, misinterpreted, and so on. You see the same groups of people, the same polarizing begin to appear as happened on that day. You would think after 2,000 years that we would have moved on a little bit, but the human heart predominantly stays the same. And so I want to Look at these three groups of people and maybe you'll want to put yourself in one of these groups uh, or all your friends in another one, whatever we do with that. But this is pretty consistent and I still see it to this day. The first group is the response of the disciples and we call them those who want this. They want change. They want more of God. They wanted the Spirit. They, they were totally sold out for Jesus. They, before there was any real understanding of the Spirit coming, they just knew their life as they knew it was over, whatever it took, however they needed to, to act, they were going to follow Jesus' way. So they desired change. They were prepared to pay the price. They put no caveats on the deal. They just said, no, whatever he says, whatever he gives, I'm all in. There's no conditions on that. So they were the early adopters in this sort of thing. And if you look at the context here, you can see that the disciples' response was very key to, the, to, the, to them really taking on and working with God in the moment. And they were able to do that. It says that when the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Uh, Other translations say they were there of one accord. They were unified in their purpose. They were unified in their location. They were together in this. However many it was in that upper room that day, they were together. Jesus had said, go to Jerusalem and wait because you're going to be filled with the Holy Spirit. So they said, well, until he says otherwise. That's what we're doing. So they were all in. And so that, that positioned them in that unity of spirit, that unity of purpose. They were prepared to put aside all the things that made them differ and there would have been a bucket full. Don't worry about that. But they said, no, we're not here because of that. We're not going to separate because of that. We're unified because of the purpose, because of the mission, because of Jesus in our life. And that's the only way the church can effectively become what Jesus called it to be. If we're prepared to say we may all have differences in so many ways, that we're unified in our purpose. Incredibly powerful. It positions us to receive because where there is unity, God commands the blessing, the Psalms say. And so this this is an incredible catalyst for these to be positioned to receive what God had in store for them. But back then, just as it is now, that mindset has incredible upsides, but it comes with a few downsides as well because these guys, um, they bought in to the point of uh, unrestrained, maybe we could call it excess. Uh, If you follow the scripture along, people begin to look at what's going on. The public who have no concept of what's going on and why just see these people rolling out of this building and say, are these guys drunk? It's only nine o'clock in the morning. And so I'm sure they didn't do that just because they were speaking in other languages. I think it was a bit of a chaotic scene. It was excessive. Um, and you see this in, in, in these sorts of environments where people are hungry for God and they, they partner with the Holy Spirit. Sometimes they partner to the point of excess and they make themselves an easy target for the critics. And, and did Jesus want them to be in excess and, and look unruly and look drunk at that time? Probably not. Was His judgment upon them? Probably not. But everyone else's was. And it gave plenty of, of low-hanging fruit for them to take target out there and say, this can't be of God. This is, this is wrong. You know, and so even to this day, this same dynamic happens and you can become so enamored and so enthusiastic about the Holy Spirit. We can we can get ourselves mixed up in there and we can lose restraint and and we can present really bad press for what God wants to do. What he wanted to do was just speak the glory of God in other languages in that time. and But the, the faults and the restrictions of humanity for a little while, and I'm sure all of these disciples outgrew that. Uh, but at that moment, there was excess going on. And we just got to be careful about that. You know, that's just a normal part of life and that's what real people do. Uh, and I admit to you, there have been moments in my life where I think I've probably edged over into excess, born of enthusiasm. But maturity says that's just a moment and I can come back from that into fullness of power with dignity of the Holy Spirit. So there are those like that who are those who desire, they're the wanting. And then they are the second group I'm going to call the willing. These are people who... Um, take more of a mental approach. And you can see them in the, in the passage here. Uh, they're open. They're open to what God's doing, um, but they take a more mental approach to assess it. They're cautious. And these are the sort of people who would rather sit back and watch and observe for a while before they buy in, if they're to buy in. Uh, and there's many people in Christian circles who do this. So good God-loving people who do this. But they prefer that if God's going to do something, that He comes to them and lets them know in advance that they have it written out and and they know the contract, so to speak, and it's all defined and it's all understandable. There's no room for error going on. Um, They'd rather God calls them than than they press in and do what the disciples were doing, where they were just making waves, so to speak, rather than waiting to catch them. And so it's a very different dynamic. It's like if we present the door, they've got one foot in out of curiosity, but they've got one foot out just in case it all goes pear-shaped and it's not valid. And... The bad side of this, obviously, is that our out clause, when it comes to God's open doors prevents us from radical buy-in. If we're hedging our bets here, we'll find that we never quite buy into all or, or partner with all that God has for us. So in Acts 2 verse 12, for example, it says this, Amazed and perplexed, they asked each other, what does this mean? So there's so much about this stance that is understandable. There's so much that is admirable because we, we do, we should have to assess and weigh things up before jumping in all the time to everything because some things are just fads. Some things are not wise. So it's good to consider so long as we make a conclusion because we can have conversations and discussions and Bible studies and we can look into the Greek about absolutely everything and somehow that gives us permission to do nothing. And so all we do is know a lot, but we haven't done a lot. And so this whole place of being willing, we need to be able to embrace that. And yet, once we figure out, well, this is the way we really should go, then make a firm commitment and go there. So the first group was those who want. The second group are those who are willing. Third group are those who are unwilling. And uh, I love the way the scriptures define these guys. It says this. Some, however, made fun of them and said they've had too much wine. You know, after 2000 years, this still happens. And in some ways with good reason. Uh, you hear comments like, these people are crazy. This thing's of the devil. All sorts of little catchphrases that we just throw away about something that's really, unfortunately, is, is Humanity and the weakness and the frailty of our flesh mixed with the, the greatness and the purity of God. And it gets a little bit messy sometimes. And so people think, well, if it's not perfect and it's not pure, God can't be involved. The reality is God's involved in your life. You're not perfect. The Holy Spirit still seems fit to dwell in you, but you know we all do stupid things sometimes. And so we've got to really extrapolate that out and say, well, it is possible for God to be involved in something for, and for it not to end up perfect because human beings are involved too and not discount something purely because of the excess of other people. But You know, the judgment in all of us leans its way very, very easily. And we make ourselves unwilling to walk through what we think is just a closed door, but when in reality it's God's open door. So many movements uh, in, around the world, even in Australia, have begun this way. I remember some decades ago, even when the Hillsong movement, for example, started, which we all know and, and most of us have some opinion or another about but I was literally there on the ground when it happened and, and remember the, the uproar from the religious people of the day that this, what seemingly, you know, arrogant New Zealanders coming in and doing this new thing and it's just clashing against what we do. And, uh, and it became a polarising environment. And now there's hundreds of thousands of people around the world, good people, smart people, enthusiastic people who love God have become part of that movement that still to this day, religious people will love to criticise. And so Judgment of other church folk seldom ends well. It's seldom a good plan. We should really withhold that judgment, certainly withhold quick judgments on these sorts of things and perhaps hold our tongue just a little bit. And so there are a few of the different things we can see the responses that we can take. And I wonder where you feel like you've fitted into those things. But there's a principle about open doors is that we dismiss uh, what is uncomfortable too easily as a not an open door. And we dismiss these things at our peril because the path to a new horizon that God has for us may well be travelled with the people or the environment or the culture that we least want to be associated with. Sometimes the way God has for us forward is a way that we would never choose for ourselves. But when you think of it, how else is He going to bring something new into our life if we're just doing what we've always done? And so quite often an open door will be an open door into something quite uncomfortable. And Pentecost and everything it represents continues to be that uncomfortable open door that's there for all of us. So I wonder what your response has been and and is to Pentecost. We've painted our target on the wall quite clearly as a church that we fully believe in Pentecost. We believe it's one of the most crucial days in the history of, of humanity and of church life especially that the spirit of God living in us enables us to do what was impossible before. You can only live the Christian life with God's help. God's will must be done God's way and with God's help. And so this is a fundamental part of the DNA of what we do. But I understand people have come from many upbringings where this has not been the emphasis yet. And we're trying to do this well and maturely and credibly. But what's your response to this? What's your response to Pentecost? Has it been just a distant point in history that's somewhat removed from you because there's so many books have been written about it? Uh, it's something that mattered once and then, but not anymore. Is it a reminder to you of constant excess or the things that you've seen that have given you reason not to be involved in pursuing more of God's Holy Spirit and therefore gives you permission just to walk away? Is it a topic that you'll just question forever and not to come to any conclusion? Or is it a door for you, as it has been for me personally and for so many thousands of people that I've worked with over the years into a whole new journey of spirit empowerment, of an experience of power, experience of joy, of still navigating the troubles that everyone else has and yet seeing the whispers of God bring clarity in the situations, of seeing greater miracles and small miracles and and God intervene in this mixed up and messed up life but unmistakably have God in there bringing incredible peace and joy through the whole thing. What's your response to Pentecost? I love the Holy Spirit. He is God. How do you feel about him? Let's reflect on that now. Welcome back. The trouble with being only willing, as understandable as it is, as acceptable as it is, is it can lead us to uh, the option of never committing fully to anything. We just go on with our life and live as everyone else and just try and do it under our own strength, uh, in our own way. But when we come to Pentecost and this whole idea of how do I really, really fulfill um, what scriptures promise so clearly, We can reduce our life to conversations about that without conviction. You know, we can know the Greek, we can know what it all means and and just keep talking about it. But 1 Corinthians 4.20, Paul really lays it out there as only Paul can. He says, the Christian life, the kingdom, it's not a matter of talk, but of power. At the end of the day, everyone can talk, but there is only one Holy Spirit. There are some things that the Holy Spirit can do that we can just watch that and go, you'll never be able to talk me out of that. That's real. That happened. Only God could do that. And there has to be a moment in our life, personally and in our lifestyle as we live out in the world, where those moments, whether frequently or infrequently, have this smatterings of the Holy Spirit's power, the evidence of His presence in our life there. And I've had plenty of conversations over the years with people who agree or disagree or think we should go further and harder or or we should stop talking about this sort of thing But at the end of the day, I refuse to be influenced on this topic by anyone who's not working or experienced the power of the Holy Spirit themselves. Theoreticians are of no use in this. This is a practical promise. This is an open door that we say yes or we say no. How that works out is very differently in all of us because we all manifest the presence of God differently in our life in accordance with our faith, in our personality, our giftings, in our calling, our situations and our seasons of life. Understood. But at the end of the day, that can't be an excuse for us to abdicate our responsibility to actively pursue and walk with the Holy Spirit in our life and understand what that means practically. Let's have a look from Scripture directly in the same chapter of how it worked out for them. What influence did the Holy Spirit make in all these people? The 3,000 that day that heard the explanation They bought in, it says they they believed and they were baptised. Great start. If you haven't been baptised, that's the first thing you need to do uh, to begin to walk in obedience to what God's calling. But let's look at what happened next. Pick it up in Acts 2, 42, 47. It says, They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to the prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes. They ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favour of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. So much there is just, this is what normal Christianity should look like. And when we're doing that, people are added every day to our number. Are people being added to our number, to your number, to your house church or whatever else. It's an incredible indictment on on all of us and we need to process this in a context of grace. But you look at what's been going on in their life through the power of the Holy Spirit. There was devotion um, to learning. There was connection with others. They were enamored with each other's company and to learning and growing more. There were signs and wonders. The power of the Spirit was obvious. There was unity and incredible sacrifice and sharing of selling homes and so on. There was praising of God and there was enjoying the favour of the people in their culture. You look at all those sort of signs and go, is this our experience? Does the culture love the local church? Uh, Are we we selling homes to provide for the needs of others? All these sorts of things, it's confronting. But the Spirit was so uh, an enamoured part of their life, compelling them to do more, compelling them, enabling them to do what they would never normally do in their own strength. You, You can't help but see. The Spirit's presence makes a difference. And you won't ever be able to live that life if you're undecided. If you're standing at that door of Pentecost with one foot out and one foot in and just want to keep doing another Bible study on it, it requires that decision. And there are things that compel us, as I said at the beginning, that to walk away from that door to go, oh, it's not really me. Or some of them are things like comfort. You read that list that I just gave out or that's found in Acts chapter 2 and like the rich young ruler that Jesus confronted, and we can walk away sad. We go, that life, I could never do that. Bottom line is that's the point. You can never do that. You can't live the life God calls us to do in our own strength. But when the Spirit is in us and upon us and empowering us, everything becomes possible. Sometimes it's fear again. We, we look at this and go, no, I'm too scared of that. And we live by the eternal what if. What if this happens? What if someone says that? What if my family doesn't like me anymore? What if I'm a bit strange? And there's all these what ifs that don't take into consideration. What if God gave me everything that I needed? What if it didn't matter anymore? What if I'm living part of the eternal kingdom 24-7? Uh, things change then. Sometimes it's a sense of inadequacy. We, we look at ourselves and we go, I can't do this. I couldn't cope with this. I could never do that. But again, it's an equation based without the X factor, the God factor in there because His presence makes all the difference. Sometimes it's just as simple as we've rejected the whole idea. It's a new idea. It's not the way we've done religion before. We found a way to do our life without this. I'm going to reject it. It's not a new idea. It's been there since the very beginning. And so we need to grapple with this in a whole new way. We've got to understand that God's open doors, and Pentecost is just one, that the, the presence of our questions and our fears does not mean it's not an open door. It just means it's just highlighting again, our stuff. And there are some doors that have been open and continue to be open for 2,000 years. And sometimes we come across them and we walk away and we keep coming back. Let's have a look at a few of those. The door of mission, for example. Sometimes we feel compelled to pray. God, should I go on mission? And he's like, I answered that 2,000 years ago. I've commanded go into all the world. The, the light is green. The door is open. Just go. Our prayer doesn't need to be, should we go? It's where do we go? How do we go? And all those sorts of things. So those doors are all open. There's the door of Pentecost, the door of the Holy Spirit. That door has remained open. It remains open for anyone who would long to drink from the river of life as he pours. Jesus promised it. Jesus provided it. And the offer remains open. There's also the door of salvation, where Jesus died once and for all. And he makes an offer of abundant life. And you may be watching this and and people are watching from all over the world in these, uh, these sessions. And you may not have ever really committed yourself to accepting, relying on the fact that Jesus paid the price for you that you could never pay for your sin, for your imperfection, for your misgivings, however you want to word that. The fact that you're not God, that you're not perfect. Jesus paid the price for that so that you could have access to God. He opened that door for you. He tore the veil, it says in Scripture, that removed and separated you from the presence of God. He tore it open and says, come, come. That door is open. All you need to do is place your faith in him and say, Jesus, I rely on you to get access to your presence, not on my own efforts. I accept what you've done for me, forgive my sin and help me to enter into this walk with you. So why don't we, as we finish, why don't we pray that prayer right now? Pray this prayer about the open door. It may be salvation for you. It may be mission for you. It may be accepting the Holy Spirit in a new way and dedicating yourself to that. So let's pray as we close off this segment. Father, I pray for every person who's listening, every person who's aware of you, every person who longs to take the next step, but for whatever reason may have hesitated at the door. Lord, I pray you would give the gift of faith to each of them to step over that threshold without the requirement of knowing exactly the detail of everything that lands beyond that door, but knowing and understanding and trusting the one who draws them across that threshold. Lord, I bless them with faith. Lord, will you uh, stamp out fear? Will you stamp out doubts? Will you stamp out our human requirement for understanding and give people a simple faith based in a revelation of the size of your love? And we can know that we can trust in you more than our own intelligence, understanding or strength. Give us that faith. We trust you. We walk through that door together with your help and for your favour. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks, everyone. See you again soon.